Our Father, we are reminded of the fact that we live in a world that is touched by sin and vileness, but this is yet, even in that condition, this is our Father's world. You are in control, and nothing transpires here that is beyond your ability to change, and all things that do transpire require your providence. And we're so grateful that we therefore can trust in you as the Lord of our lives, as the strength for each day, as the one who is charting our future according to your divine plan. And Lord, I thank you that we can uh, encourage one another, that we can pray for one another, that you have created the church as an entity uh, whereby we, um, we work together for the sake of your kingdom and, and for the sake of each individual member of the church. And so, Father, I pray that today you will be powerfully present here uh, in our midst, that you will be blessing in every, every Sunday school class and in the church service as it transpires at this hour too. And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn in the scripture to the 27th chapter of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 27, I'd like to read the first five verses. This is where we ended last week. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our fathers died in the wilderness. Our father died in the wilderness. Yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family? Because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. And Moses brought their case before the Lord. As the leader of God's people, Moses' task was not simply to be the spokesman for God in the sense of relating the, the law as it was given to him on Sinai, but Moses had the day-by-day -day responsibility of serving this nation of people as not only their spiritual leader, but also their temporal leader. And so Moses was a man who was, of course, gifted by God with great insight and understanding, but he was human, and therefore his insight and understanding were limited. And as we come to this uh, particular event, we discover that for Moses there was no precedent. No precedent had been set as to what to do in a situation such as this. And one of the, the, the main truths that we derive from this uh, rather obliquely is that God is no respecter of persons. Uh, there are sometimes we think that <clears throat> because of the wording of the Old Testament that God cared for men and didn't care much for women, and that is absolutely wrong. This is a passage which illustrates that these ladies were as important to God as any of the sons of Israel. And, and therefore, he uses this as a test case and as an opportunity to establish a new statute uh, in Israel uh, to express justice. 
I think one of the most important truths that we garner from this particular passage is found in the last verse, verse 5 there, where we read that Moses brought their case before the Lord. Moses was not a man who presumed. Oh, at one moment he presumed, and, and as we go on in this passage, uh, this, this chapter we discover, of course, that he would pay for that presumptuous activity. But for the most part, he was not a man who presumed. He was a man who went before God whenever the situation seemed beyond his ability to discern the correct answer. And in so doing, he became a powerful example to us. Over and over again, this man Moses has been an example to us. Even though he lived <clears throat> 3,500 years ago, he was no different from you and from me in the sense of uh, being of limited knowledge and limited understanding and limited physical strength, even though he had more than most of us, it seems. And, and so he becomes uh, one that we can look to for, for direction. And I, I forget whether we read this passage last week or not, but let's turn to it again in the first chapter of James. First chapter of James, uh, verses 5 through 8, are a very important passage for us to be familiar with. Because we are often in a situation where we're not sure what to do in a particular situation. And so God gives us through James a, a direct expression of the mind of the Lord as to what we ought to do. So let me read this passage. Verse 5 of James 1. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him or her. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man unstable in all of his ways. I think one of the important truths that comes from our study of both Old Testament and New Testament is that God is not simply a dispenser of uh, information. God is not someone where you just plug in the proper prayer and out spits a little card that says, well, this is your problem, this is your answer. God's wisdom is far beyond simply an answer to a question. Because the wisdom of God is an expression of His very nature, of His very character. God is wisdom. God is love. God is grace. Th these are attributes of God that flow forth from Him, and they are life-changing. God is not so concerned with our little problem as He is with changing our lives. And, and that's why we have problems. We have problems because God is using those problems to, to mold us and to make us more in the image of His Son. Because what is the wisdom of God? Well, if you turn to the third chapter of James, verse 17, it tells you. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. Huh. I mean, the wisdom of God expresses who God is. God is gentle. God is peaceable. God is reasonable. He's full of mercy and good fruits. He's unwavering. He's without hypocrisy. So, so that's an expression of the nature of God. 
And so as we take wisdom from God, we're not just getting information to solve a particular problem. We're, we're absorbing a portion of who God is himself. And hopefully that's changing us. Changing us so that as we face other dilemmas in the future, um, we will know the mind of God and, and what to do in, in that particular situation. In this first chapter of James, in the sixth verse, there is, of course, a great emphasis upon faith. Now, the faith is, of course, presupposed to begin with that we're talking about saving faith. Uh, we're talking about a person who truly is born again, who is coming before God for that wisdom from above. So that is presumed here. But secondly, it's a faith that requires trust. In fact, trust and faith are almost synonymous terms. You can't have faith in someone you don't trust. And you can't trust someone you don't know, right? So this presumes that we know God and, and are wanting to know Him. And by expressing faith, we are in effect crying out to know Him better so we can trust Him even more. This verse talks about the person who is without faith being someone who is like the surf of the sea. Someone who does not rest on the rock, the solid rock of God's truth and his nature and his character. If you're standing on the solid rock, the storms can beat, but you won't be moved. But if you don't really trust God, or if it's we suppose this, we suppose that, we suppose something else, and we, we throw out all the possibilities here, and we're just not sure, you know, do we really believe that God hears our prayer? Do we really believe that God cares about our need? Do we really believe his word? And all of this is tested because you go back up into the uh, earlier part of this uh, uh, same chapter. In verse 3 it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. <laughs> your faith, my faith, is going to be tested. And he wants to test that faith so it will become rock solid, not tossed around by every wave of doctrine or every wave of, of threatening situation that, that comes into our lives. Coming to that place where we absolutely trust in God because we know God has total control of the entire situation and His love for you is absolutely without limit and therefore what is there to be worried about? Now, it's easy for me to say that, but of course in every individual situation we have to take all of the factors into account. But we have to ultimately, that, that's what God's ultimate purpose is, is to bring us to that place where we are unwavering in our faith and our trust in Him no matter how hard the storms may blow about us. And they will blow. In, in fact, this whole passage dealing with wisdom uh, goes back to the earlier part where he says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Oh, yippee, you know. Uh, most of us just don't go around saying, oh, hallelujah, another trial. That is really what it means, of course. It means that deep down inside, we have the confidence and contentment in God regardless of what's going on. We don't just pull our hair out and scream and get ready to blow our brains out because of the problem. Because we have come to that place to know that deep down inside I can have the joy of the Lord no matter how difficult the storm may be. And knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfected, complete, lacking in nothing. 
that lacking in nothing doesn't mean you won't have uh, you know a bank account that dips below zero now and then and it doesn't mean that you you know you may not have everything you want at the moment it, it simply means that lacking in the graces of God uh, that in the graces of God you will lack nothing because God's ultimate goal is always our walk with him and, and if to get our walk with him on the right keel it requires taking away some of the comforts of life and the physical things of life he'll do that because his greatest joy is not to look down and say, oh, that person is having such a good time. They're happy today. You know, the sun is warm. They've got their new convertible driving around. This is not to say, I, I don't know anybody has a convertible here. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not making any accusations here. I, I, I'm just trying to think of what would, what would be fun, you know. And uh, <laughs> driving through Yosemite Park, looking at the falls and all of this. I mean, God, God joys in the joy that we have. But that's not his principal purpose in our lives. His principal purpose is to cause us to have joy in the midst of things not being so good and not being so wonderful and, and actually being many times difficult. And, and so Moses goes before the Lord because this is a difficult problem. It may not look like it from our point of view today, but for Moses it was a problem. What to do? Here are five ladies who have a real need. And there's no precedent here as to how to divide the land when there are no sons involved. And so Moses goes before the Lord as our example. And God knows that our wisdom is finite, that we're often in a quandary. I, and I would suppose that possibly every one of us at some point in, in a given day is at a quandary about what to do in a certain situation. You know, if I do this, what will be the result? If I do that, what will be the result? And what he wants us to do is come to the place where when we're uncertain what to do, the uncertainty is based on how do we best express the nature of God in this? Not on whether, you know, it's going to end up with some physical result that really in the eternal purposes of God is relatively unimportant. So God has given us access to wisdom through his indwelling Holy Spirit. And I just stuck a couple of verses in here from John just to remind us that Jesus refers in the 14th chapter of John to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And that's very important because the Spirit of God who indwells us is the one who's going to give us wisdom. And he is incapable of giving us non-wisdom. <laughs> Or, or falsehood. He can only give us truth. In verse 16 of John 14, we read, And I will ask the Father, these are Jesus' words, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. And down in verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. See, God's truth will come to us through his word and through the truths of who Christ is and who God is. Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot know. And since the world cannot know the spirit of truth, it cannot know truth. The world is full of lies. So we shouldn't be particularly amazed 
when the leadership, you know, public leadership of our land, national, state, local, whatever it is, act in unwise manners. We, we shouldn't be surprised. Because if they don't know God, they don't know the author of truth, they don't know truth, they're going to act in ways that are natural to human nature and those are antithetical to God himself. Now the Spirit of God will give us wisdom. He will speak to us in our hearts, but he will do so through the Word of God and through Spirit-filled counselors who are in the Word of God. I think there are some requirements by which we can receive this wisdom from God. You know, I don't think it's just a matter of us running in before God and saying, God, I don't know what to do. Please tell me what to do. And then running out, you know, and expecting it to kind of wham us into the head, you know, like the light bulb in the comic strip. I think there are some requirements placed upon us in order for us to receive the wisdom from God. And first of all, I, I think, and in this is, of course, expressly uh, stated in James chapter 1, we must honestly and diligently seek God in prayer. Serious, honest prayer. If our prayer is just perfunctory, oh God, please help me in this situation, and your heart's not in it, you know, it's just kind of a, a little flippant prayer, or if, if we have a totally careless attitude about the situation, well, God, I want your wisdom here, but I already have my idea what I'm going to do. Or if we have a hidden agenda. You know, it, of course, no agenda is hidden from God, but we have a, you know, inside our own hearts, we're just kind of pushing it aside, pretending like we don't know it's there. And we're praying to God, oh Lord, this is, I need wisdom in this, but down inside you already know what you plan to do, but you're trying to just mask it over here so that you can pray a, a true prayer to God. I mean, God's not fooled by any of that. In, in James 4, verse 3, we read, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, God is, is not a killjoy. No, God's not against pleasure. But if we are going before God and asking God to do something specifically for our pleasure, irrespective of any spiritual value to it or what it means to other people, God is not going to answer that prayer, except negatively. Secondly, as we also read in James, we must ask in faith, believing what? Believing that he cares, well, believing that he hears, and believing that he cares, and believing that he'll honor his word. Now, if we always go before God and saying, Dear Lord, help me in this situation if you're listening to me and if you've got the time or, you know, I know I'm unworthy, it's good to always have a sense of unworthiness, but we are made worthy through Christ if we're truly his child. And so we pray in his worthiness, not in our worthiness, uh, that the answer will come. And, and in that prayer, we have to have faith in the fact that God will answer it in the way that is right and good and in accordance with his plan. And it may not be exactly the way we'd like to have it answered. Thirdly, I don't think God's going to be able to answer our prayer very well if we're not studying His Word. Because that's primarily how God speaks to us, is right through this book. And if we're not studying it, how in the world is the Holy Spirit going to tell us anything? God doesn't normally just drop information out of the clear blue sky upon us. I'm not saying He never does that, but normally He does not do that. He does it through His Word. The Scripture teaches us in Hebrews that He is the rewarder of those who, what? Diligently seek Him. Diligently seeking Him doesn't mean that once a month you break open the Bible and reread Psalm 23. <laughs> Diligently seeking Him means that 
that each day you, you really are looking to him for direction, for wisdom, and you're making the word a part of your regular life. And of course it involves prayer. You can't diligently seek anything from God unless you're a person of prayer. And then fourthly, I think that we should seek godly counsel. There are a lot of counselors in this world. I don't think it's wise to get counsel from a non-Christian in, in almost any area. I don't think it's wise. And I don't think it's wise to get counsel for someone who claims to be a Christian but whose life does not match their profession. Or from someone who is too immature in the faith to really have that walk with God from which they can give you godly counsel. You need to go to someone who, who is in the Word, who, who is a man or a woman of faith, of many years of maturity, and who cares about your problem. It's easy to go to somebody and say, would you help me with this? And they don't give a rip. They'll say, oh yeah, sure. And they might pass up some kind of a perfunctory prayer or like most, just forget about it. it needs to be someone who really, really cares about you and, and about your need. And, and I think these things have all got to be part of this seeking the wisdom from God above. Well, let's go on in Numbers 27, reading at verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If, he has no, if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. The concern of these five ladies was obviously the concern of the living God. You know, behind the scenes here, I, have, I think we have to believe that God put it in the hearts of these ladies to be bold enough to go before the godly leadership of the land in front of the tabernacle, in front of the whole congregation, and make this request. And by His grace, He quickly and He definitively answers the prayer and meets their need. And then God goes beyond that. He uses this opportunity to proclaim a general policy on fair land distribution. So God moves from the immediate to the broader situation so that Moses will now have a precedent. Joshua will have a precedent and the subsequent leaders of Israel will have a precedent. They will have a word from the Lord what to do in this situation or in any other similar situation. I mean, beyond just if there are no sons, but if there are also no daughters, or no brothers, or no uncles, what to do? Now, you know, in a nation like Israel, the chances of there being none of those was pretty small, but still, it could come to a point where a person had no near relatives, and so what to do? And even that is explicitly given here. The order of inheritance was very important, because it protected the lineage of the men who had no sons. <laughs> I should know, you know. I have four daughters, and I'm not complaining one little bit. 
because I now also have four sons as a result of that. But it guarantees the provision for an orderly progression of society and a just distribution of the land. See, God is interested in justice. I mean, he is, he is immensely interested in justice. And it is only by his providence that he allows so much unjustness to occur in this world. And one day that will come to an end. And he will change all that. And I'm sure we are all looking forward to that to that day. You'll notice that part of this statute is to keep the land in the family. Don't let it get out of the family. Keep it within the family for the reason that I emphasized before several weeks ago, and that is land ownership was considered to be absolutely essential for you to be a real uh, citizen in the society. Landless persons were generally disenfranchised politically and often socially. And so maintaining land possession was very, very important. <coughs> they didn't have a society where, well, you need some bread, you run down to the local store and pick up bread, you know. You had to produce what you ate yourself, for the most part. And, and so it was very important for families to possess land and to protect it from lesser members of the clan that might be greedy and acquisitive. I mean, that's human nature. Well, the justness of this law, I mean, you look at this law and you can say, this is a just law. That, that proves that it came from God and not right out of man because men's laws tend to be unjust. I mean, you go back and you read the, the translation of Hammurabi's Code, for example, which is one of the oldest law codes that we know of that goes back about 3,700 years, predates Moses. And, and you read Hammurabi's law code and you say, this is not fair. Because it says, you know, if a rich guy does something to a poor guy, all he has to do is pay him a few bucks. But if a poor guy does something to a rich guy, he'll pay with his life. We might say, yeah, you know, that's not terribly foreign to our society either. Well, it's not foreign to any society. That's human wisdom. It's unfair, unjust, but that's not the way it is with God. And this law was just. Verse 12 of Numbers 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. And when you have seen it, you too shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled at my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Mirabah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Now Moses couldn't help but know that his, that his time was near because he knew what God had already said to him, that he would not enter the land. And Israel was preparing to enter the land. They were gathered there on the plains of Moab, and they were getting ready to go into the land. So this was, no, this was not news to the Lord. Therefore, I don't think it was a surprise when God says to him, go up to the mountains of Abarim, look over the land, and you're going to be gathered to your fathers because of what you did at Mirabah. But I think it couldn't help but sadden him. You know, Moses was human. I'm sure that somewhere down inside him, there was that little bitty hope that maybe God would say, okay, Moses, um, I forgave you for what you did. Now I'm going to have that little extra bit of mercy on you, and I'm going to let you go in after all. You know, I, he had to have that somewhere down inside. 
I mean, it was flesh and blood. But God is reminding him, no, that God's word is eternal and that the judgment of God would be carried out. I mean, the righteousness of God was displayed in how God dealt with the, da with the daughters of Zelophehad. And now in this passage, we see the holiness of God demonstrated again. Moses and Aaron had endeavored to usurp the glory of God at the waters of Meribah. And as a result, God's discipline was inescapable. So Moses was now to go up into the Abarim range of mountains here. Again, probably simply a portion of the crest of the great escarpment there that rises out of the Jordan Valley up to the highlands of Moab. And from there he is to view the promised land. Now where exactly does he go? It doesn't say here. And what does he see? Well, but it does say something about this more specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, reading at verse 48, And the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. So he could stand on the top of Mount Nebo and whip out his trusty binoculars. <laughs> Scripture tells us that when he died, his eyes were not diminished. I guess we'd say he still had 20-20 vision. And I think God gave him probably eyesight even better than 20-20 vision to be able to see the land as he looked to the south down across the, the Dead Sea and, and over into the uh, highlands of Judea. And as he looked uh, westward here towards the area and, of the hills that rise up to Jerusalem. And then as he looked to the northwest and, and he looked out across the highlands of Ephraim or Ephraim and over towards Mount Carmel. And then as he looked almost due north uh, along the edge of the escarpment and he could look up the Jordan Valley towards the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon in the distance and, and, and the, the highlands of Galilee, the waters of Merom and, and others. And, and he could just sweep across this land and he had never been there. You know, he was born in Egypt and, and he had fled over into the wilderness uh, around the Red Sea and lived down you know, amongst the Midianites. And, and now he is seeing the land for the first time in, in the sense of really seeing the land as God gave him the ability. I mean, I think in his mercy, God, God may not have you know, run a video by him of what's going to happen, but, but he could see the land and he could see it was a good land. And in those days, it had trees. <laughs> and and it, it, it looked good. Nowadays, they're trying to put the trees back. And they're working hard at planting trees over there to try to restore something of, of what the land had looked like in, in those days when, I mean, it, there isn't any way Absalom could get himself hung up in a tree in the forest of Ephraim in, in the last 2,000 years because there wasn't any forest. You know, he'd had to really look hard to find a tree to get his hair stuck in. 
over there to in in recent years. But now they're trying to reforest these areas, uh, which at one time were forested. You go over there, it looks pretty bleak, and you think, man, this is a rocky place. Why would this be the promised land, you know? And it's because it's not the same land it was. It hasn't been under careful uh, management in the last 2,000 years. And, and of course, the Romans did a lot of bad <laughs> damage to it when they were storming through the countryside. And, and over the centuries, you know, with the, with the Persians coming and, and the Arabs coming and the Turks coming and the British coming, and I mean everybody's coming, and everybody's taking a hunk out of the land in terms of destruction. And so that's what you're seeing today is the product of all those centuries of damage. But that's not what Moses saw. He saw the land before that damage had taken place. He saw a turnkey land, cities in place, orchards planted, vineyards planted, crops planted. And his people were going to walk in and just take over. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, in World War II where we blow everything to smithereens before we take it over. Or like the Romans did to Carthage. You know, when they captured Carthage back in the middle of the second century, uh, they wrecked the city. I mean, they flattened the city. And then they come along, uh, you know, a few years later and thought, well, this probably was a dumb idea. Let's rebuild the city. You know, pretty stupid. But that's normal human wisdom, you know. It's otherwise known as stupidity. Moses was one of the most godly men to ever live, and yet obviously he had feet of clay. Take heart. God had forgiven Moses for his sin at Meribah, but the penalty still had to be faced. It's very interesting here to notice Moses' attitude as he faces this last severe test of his life. What is his attitude? Well, let's read verse 15 of Numbers 27. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep who have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, the man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him and have, have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and commission, commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation." And Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. And he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now, sometimes we run across those little phrases and they get to be old hat after a while, but just notice how it, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, just. Moses does not say, oh God, I've got to go up in the mountain and die and sit down and have a big pity party. He doesn't walk around distressed and depressed. You know, what happens when we get bad news? Do we walk around with our chin on the ground, make everybody uncomfortable because we've got bad news? Well, I'm sure we do. And I, I don't think Moses was jumping around, clicking his heels with joy, you know, that uh, he's going to go up in the mountain and die. But you'll notice what he does here. He demonstrates a true pastor's heart. 
His primary concern is not, oh God, I got to go up in the mountain and die. His primary concern is, what about the people that I've led for these 40 years? I've invested these years into these people. What are you going to do for them? Are they going to have competent and godly leadership in my stead? And I don't think that's a statement. I, I'm not implying here that he was uh, making an arrogant statement or, or displaying an arrogant attitude. Can you find anybody as good as I am God? Not, he's not saying that. He really cares about the people. He doesn't want them to be as a sheep without shepherd. And he knew that what would happen if they didn't have a godly shepherd, I mean, they would go everywhere except right. And so he spoke to God about this. One of the interesting things is you almost never find a gap between Moses speaking to God and God speaking back to Moses. You know, it's just like bing, bing, like ping pong, you know, spiritual ping pong here going on. And, you know, that can happen with you and, and with me and God too. In the sense that if we're walking with God as Moses walked with God, you can talk to God and know God is going to respond. Now, he probably won't speak audibly as he apparently did to Moses here. But that's why the word is so important. That's why sometimes when you're in a quandary, you pray to God with the word in your lap because God can respond that way and give his answer. You'll notice that he calls God by a unique name here. He says, the God of the spirits of all flesh. With this statement, Moses was acknowledging, first of all, God's omniscience and therefore the wisdom of choosing Moses' replacement. The God of the spirits of all flesh. You're the God of all mankind, and you know what to do. You're the omniscient one. And he's also acknowledging at the same time that the, fa the fact that all men are known by God and are responsible to him. All men and women are known by God and responsible to him. He is the God of the spirits of all flesh, not just some flesh, not just Christian flesh, but the flesh of all men, be they Islamic or, or Buddhist or whatever they be. He is the God of the flesh of all mankind. In response to Moses' prayer, what does God say? He says to Moses that he was to consecrate Joshua to the position of shepherd over Israel. He was to have Eliezer the priest consecrate him publicly. And what qualified Joshua? This is a real key issue right here. What qualifies Joshua? Joshua is qualified because the scripture says he was a man in whom was the spirit. That was his qualification. You know, the primary qualification by which so often we look around for someone to be our leader was not the qualification that God gives here. I mean, we look for administrative ability. We look for oratorial, or oratorical talent. We look for, in this case, we would look for military brilliance, you know, leadership, uh, personal charisma, uh, all kinds of things that people look for. And that is not to say that those things are bad or to say that those things are not important, but it, they are not the crux of it all. Whether he was, had great administrative skills was not the most important thing. Whether he had per personal charisma was not the most important thing. The most important thing was personal godliness, deep faith, and commitment to prayer and the Word of God.
this was the crux of leadership here. And by extension, we can understand that applies within the Christian community of today. Who should be our leader? Our leader must not necessarily be determined only because of administrative ability or charisma or anything else. You know, it's good to have these things, but the crux of it is personal godliness. A man who walks with God in faith knows God, is a man of prayer and a man of the word. That is the person who is to shepherd God's people. And that is the person whom God chose. Men look on the outward appearance, the scripture tells us, while God looks on the heart. There were probably some of those in Israel who said, now let's see, if Moses is going to go, I think Sam Spade over here would be the best leader because he has great administrative ability. And listen to him, he talks like Pericles, you know, he's a great orator or whatever. God had been preparing Joshua for 40 years. This wasn't a last minute thing. Oh, I'm taking Moses. I better think about who I'm going to replace him with. I mean, God had been working on this all along, and, and, Mo, and Joshua had been on the mountain with Moses. God had spent 40 years preparing Moses in the wilderness, and now he spent another 40 years preparing Joshua for leadership. Joshua was a man with a true servant's heart. I don't think that was a surprise to Moses. You know, I think all along Moses was thinking, well, it looks pretty much like God's chosen Joshua to me. But Moses, again, is not a man to presume. And so he wants to make sure. And so he goes to God and says, Lord, you're taking me. I don't want these people to be sheep without shepherd. So God, who are you going to place in leadership? You know, in, inside he had his own uh, understanding of who that probably would be. But he wanted to hear God say it so that he would know. And so God says, take Joshua and consecrate him. It was imperative that Joshua's appointment be both official and public. It couldn't be like Moses says to Joshua, give me around the other side of the tent. I got to tell you something. No, it had to be right smack in front of the whole congregation officially that Moses transferred his authority onto Joshua and that Eliezer the priest go through the proper rituals of commissioning this man, Joshua, to the task. Because if not, you're going to have division in the ranks. You may, might even have civil war. Because here's this tribal leader over here and a tribal leader over here and a third tribal leader over here who, I mean, we've already seen what happened with Korah. Why should you guys alone be the ones who, who you know, serve this great community before God? And God says, oh, that's the reason. You're all dead. And, and, and so to prevent civil war, Joshua had to be openly invested with authority by Moses, the understood and known leader, and Eliezer, the constituted high priest. They had to do this. Otherwise, there would have been trouble. And this made it very, very clear that any other person is a usurper. Do you remember what happened in the days of David? David had several sons. And a couple of them in particular made a run for the kingdom. And, and finally, God had basically made it clear that Solomon was going to, um, to be the next king. And so David was getting kind of old and a little senile. And so Bathsheba and others basically made it clear that he'd better coronate Solomon now or else there might be civil war. And so 
Solomon was consecrated to prevent civil war because you know what happened when Solomon died, right? You did have a split in the kingdom uh, because of the folly of his son Rehoboam. And so God was avoiding that right here by anointing Joshua as the next leader of Israel to step into the shoes of Moses. And I don't think Joshua stepped into those shoes with any degree of, well, you lucky people, here I am, you know, I'm going to be greater than Moses. I mean, Rehoboam, remember, said, my, my, you know, my little finger is going to be thicker than my father's thigh. You know, I mean, he was on big talk for a young punk. And... <laughs> And basically what he did was lose 10, 10 of the tribes of Israel as a result. And so this was not going to happen because Joshua was a humble man who stepped into the shoes of a humble man and would humbly lead Israel to victory in Canaan. And God would appear to him as we get to the first chapter of the book of Joshua. We'll, we'll see what, what God does through him. Next Sunday we'll pick up with chapter 28.